making this. If you did not, be sure you grab one of these and you can add that to your notebook. Um, we will refer to it some today. I hope it helps a little. Um, I know that this chapter is overwhelming. <laughs> you are not alone. Um, but uh, it, it, we're going to sort of make sense of some of it. But this week, we're actually only going to go through verse 35, I think it is, or 36. I can't remember. Whichever one ends that paragraph. Because that last chunk goes better with chapter 12 than with chapter 11. Um, so we're, you'll get to finish that part up next week uh, as we finish the rest of the book. But um, So be, be sure you grab this and add it. That'll help some to sort of line up some of these kings of the north and kings of the south. Um, so... What is something that you do when you are discouraged that always, or at least almost always, works to bring you encouragement? Turn on worship music. Read the Psalms. Turn on 49 on the TV and just lay there and it's all Christian music and okay. beautiful scenery. And beautiful Seriously, I'll just oh, lay there. For for me, there's one particular song that I cannot listen to without being encouraged. Um, it's an older one by Chris Tomlin called How Can I Keep From Singing? And part of it is the music, part of it is the lyrics, but I always know when I'm discouraged, that is the song I need to listen to. It's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to adjust my mindset. And so if, if we remember, that's kind of what what Daniel was doing in writing the book of Daniel. His purpose in writing the book, his goal was to encourage the Jewish people. He was living through a, a great defeat where his nation as a, as a government no longer existed. His religion was left without a place to practice it. And it, at some points, as we've already studied, it was illegal to worship God. And as he has prayed and sought wisdom and visions from God, it has been with the mindset of this desiring to encourage his people. And so I want us to keep that in our minds, that concept in our minds as we go through and see all of this that's going on back and forth in, in this chapter that we're going to study today. So today's lesson, oh, I've lost my thingy. There it is. Today's lesson picks up directly after last week's lesson. So like I told you last week, we, we're going to have to go back and look just a little bit to, to be able to pick back up for this week. So when did, when did this lesson take place? Morgan, did you start the video? Did I start it? I don't know. Well, I don't know when it's on. Is it not on? Hang on. problem. That was my big fear was with, with somebody not here to check for me. We're good. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, so we pick up directly from last week's lesson. So when did this take place? And you can flip back to, to chapter 10 there at the beginning of chapter 10 to, to remember that. Doesn't it say the first verse, the first few of Darius leave? Nope. That's not it. That's not it. Go back to the. 536? Yeah, 536. The beginning of chapter 10 tells us that this vision occurred in the third year of King Cyrus. And so that's, that's where that purple line is on my picture on the screen there that we had last week or, or on your timeline. So about 536. And so about how old was Daniel? 85-ish. Yeah. And then where was he? This one again, you'd have to look back at the first few verses of chapter 10. 
the bank of the great river, the, the Tigris River. And so I, I, I've got our map here again. We see that the Tigris River isn't the one that flows through Babylon. Um, he was probably closer to the point that was about 20 miles away from the city of Babylon. So he's, he stayed in Babylon. This tells us he stayed in Babylon instead of going back to Jerusalem when the exiles were allowed to return, um, when Cyrus made his decree. And, and what is it that happened while he was here on the banks of the Tigris River? He had been mourning and fasting for three weeks and praying, and, and he was grieved, and then what? He saw a vision, right? He saw that um, the vision of Jesus that was very similar. We, we connected it to Revelation uh, chapter 1 and that vision of Jesus. And then he had a conversation with an angel. Now, it may or may not have been the angel Gabriel, Many think that it was based on him being the angel in some other places. And so we're going to, for the simplicity's sake, I'm going to call him Gabriel throughout. Know that he may or may not be actually Gabriel, but still representative of an angel of, of God. So, um, so Gabriel told him about that invisible war that was going on, and that's what had delayed him from coming for those three weeks and and why had Daniel been been praying what was he seeking when he was praying understanding. yeah understanding that's exactly right he wanted more information more clarification so that he could the purpose of the book encourage the Jewish people so he had heard of the struggles that his people were having in Jerusalem with rebuilding the temple and he was fasting and he was praying and he was seeking that encouragement from God so that he could, he could encourage the people. And then we ended last week looking at that transition verse that was Daniel 11.1. 1, and I gave that one to somebody to read this morning. Okay. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand of support and protection. So this is the, this is the angel that's speaking, um, Gabriel. Uh, and, and this verse is, is one of the reasons that some theologians say that Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are the same person. Because if we think about what was happening in the first year of Darius the Mede was also the first year of Cyrus the Persian. And that was when he issued that decree to allow the exiles to return. And so, so this could have been... or. The, this was, this was when we see that there was another intense spiritual battle that happened those two years earlier in that first year of, of Darius um, where Gabriel came through the battle and stood with, with Darius the Mede to strengthen him. And so if, if you recall, and I don't have us reading this one again, um, but we talked about that um, that decree in Ezra chapter 1 that, that Cyrus issued the decree in order to allow the people, the, the Jewish people, to go back home to Jerusalem to be able to go back and to rebuild the temple. He sent them back with, um, with the supplies, the treasures that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and so why before we even get into the rest of the vision, why should this, the fact that, um, that Gabriel stood and confirmed and strengthened Darius the Mede, why should that encourage us? Because it wasn't just the Jewish people that can be encouraged by the book of Daniel, so why should that encourage us? Yeah? Yeah. Right. The spiritual warfare, God is a part of it. That's right. he, is, he is there every step of the way. He is uh, involved in the process. Yeah. 
Yeah, what, what, um, what else might be an encouragement that he went to and sent an angel to Darius the Mede? Darius the Mede wasn't one of God's chosen people. He wasn't in the nation of Israel, right? And so he was a pagan king that God still used and still cared enough about to use him, to strengthen him, so that he would issue this decree and carry out God's plan for his own people. He wanted, he sent, sent Gabriel through the battle in order to, to have his will accomplished. Um, and, and I have, uh, I gave somebody James 1.17. So God does not change. And so if God strengthened, sent an angel to strengthen Darius the Mede in 539 BC, there is no reason that God is not sending angels to strengthen leaders today that may or not may or may not believe in him. God is still in control of nations and kings and governments. He is still in control in our post-Christian society and angels are being sent and fighting battles all the time. This is this is our encouragement. This is what we can walk away with. God is sovereign. God is in control and God is doing something. So now we've set ourselves up for the vision um, and, and we're gonna dive into the vision itself. And so I had Daniel 11 verses two through four. And now when I show thee the truth, behold, they shall stand up left, three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Asia. And the mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he rules. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside him. And so th this is, this is going to be the beginning of our history lesson. Um, and, and this is, um, but it, we can look at it just, just like we have in the past. We can look at it as history. But for Daniel, this was events yet to come. Um, but we, uh, we have already talked a lot about Persia. We've talked a lot about Greece. But here they are again. And so let's, let's break down, the, they are here and they are important for a reason. Um, so, so what does it say about Persia? It doesn't say much. So, so three more kings, and what about that, that last king? He will be richer and, and stronger than all the others. And then, and then what did the fourth one do? There at the end of verse 2. Stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. He, he stirred up all against the kingdom of Greece. What does it mean to stir up all against the kingdom of Greece? Cause trouble. Cause trouble. He wanted to pick a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so if you flip back to your timeline, um, there along the bottom, you see King Cyrus, and then you see um, for, he was 539 to 530 BC, and then after him we see some more kings. We see uh, Cambyses, no idea how you say these names. He was the son of Cyrus, 
he wanted to invade Egypt, but he failed to go any farther, and he ended up murdering his brother, who was the heir to the throne, Smyrdas. At the time that Cambyses was coming back from Egypt, a uh, Persian priest plotted an insurrection, and he seized the throne in 521. He took the name of the dead prince, the the, the heir, Smyrdas, and so most historians call him Pseudo-Smyrdas. I know. <laughs> History's funny sometimes, right? Um, he did not make it very long because then Darius I sort of squashed that. Um, so, and Cambyses, so he was, was still alive at the time that Pseudo-Smyrdas took on, took, you know, took the throne. Um, but, but then Cambyses died, and so Darius then came back and took, took the throne. This is not Darius the Mede. Remember, this is Darius the First. Um, he, was, he was strong. He was more a, um, a, of a, a builder and, and things like that. Then, then comes uh, Xerxes I, also known as Ahasuerus. Um, Xerxes was by far the wealthiest and most powerful Persian king. He is the king that we read about in the book of Esther. And his territory stretched from Ethiopia all the way to India. So he had made great conquests, great, great progress. Um, in, in 480 BC, he tried to invade Greece. Remember, he stirred up all against Greece. He tried to invade Greece. He was defeated. He came home very bitter. And so he sought relief from his harem, which is when Esther enters the picture. So the book of Esther occurs when King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, Xerxes is his Greek name, um, when, when Ahasuerus dis was angry and upset and discouraged. Um, and so after Cyrus and to get to that fourth king, God knew even that one of those, the, he knew the four, and he knew that that pseudo-Smerdis would only take the throne for a very brief amount of time. It was, it was only months. Uh, that's why they're all there at 521, 521, 521. Um, it, but God knew. And then um, Dr. Aiken, Daniel Aiken, in the, one of the commentaries I read, he says, and with that, we are finished with Persia. God used it to send Israel back home. It's did it, it did its job to the dustbin of history it goes. God supported and protected it to accomplish his chosen purpose. And then we move to Greece. Now we've talked a lot about Greece. But what happens with Greece in this passage? What do we know about Greece from these two verses? Who shall arise? Yeah, a, a great king, a mighty king. And then what do we know uh, from verse 4? As soon as he arisen, his kingdom shall what? Broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. So let's recall what happened to Greece. Greece defeated Persia in 332 B.C. And let me make sure I... Um, and now I know you're thinking there's a lot of time between 486 and 332. Yes, but after King Xerxes, no, no king had the same wealth, no king had the same power. There were battles and wars, but the empire didn't get any bigger. Um, and it was truly Xerxes that started the issues with Greece. At that point was called Macedonia um, or Macedon, but, but that... Uh, that's why we stop at Xerxes for Persia, even though Persia continued in power uh, for another, yeah, 100 years or so. 
So Alexander the Great was the king in, at the time that, um, that Greece defeated Persia. So Alexander was, was the one responsible for that victory. He won every battle that he fought. But he died young, and uh, while he had both a legitimate son and an illegitimate son, his sons were murdered, and so he left no heir. Um, and so his kingdom was divided among his four generals. And that's the map that you'll have on the top of that handout from today. And you can see the four different kingdoms there. Um, his general Cassander was, was the pink in your map, was Macedonia and Greece, that, that area. Lysimachus was Thrace and Asia Minor. Uh, Ptolemy was Egypt and Israel, and Seleu Seleucus was Syria, Mesopotamia, the yellow area. But none of these four came close to matching the power of Alexander the Great. So now we have these four kingdoms. Um, and you see where on your map, and I know the writing is small, I apologize. But on your map, you see Israel right there, right where the border, I mean, not on the border, but in that area where the border between the green and the yellow is, right? That puts Israel as, uh, as being impacted by whatever happens in both of those, um, both of those empires. The, um, and so because those are the two empires that really impact Israel, the vision doesn't worry about Cassander and Lysimachus. He worries about Ptolemy and Seleucus. And so, um, so that is where our focus then turns for this next passage. Now, this is a very confusing passage. And with all the he and his and him pronouns, it was not easy to even know who was whom as you read. I even tried marking mine. You know, I've got all these blue lines and orange lines and, and tried marking who was who and still had to go back. I found these great erasable pins. Excellent. I highly recommend them for doing something like this. But there are some spots where I would erase and switch them and then erase and switch them back and do it again. I don't even know if I have it right in here, um, exactly right, but I did my best, and thankfully commentaries were very helpful. But, um, but it's okay. We're going to look at it. We're going to sort of break it down um, and, and, and sort of still be able, even if we don't have all those details, we can still stand in awe of the details we do figure out and still, um, but still gather what it is that, that God wants us to learn from it. So, so yes. Um, so Daniel 11, 5 through 20. Was then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendant, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her root, one shall arise in her place. She shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and, per and shall prevail. She shall also carry off to Egypt their gods, which 
their metal energy and those precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm, the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and against, shall carry the war as far as his forces. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall rise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the kings of the north shall again rise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face upon the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon them. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. <clears throat> and so here we zoom in on the time between 323 and 163 BC. We're going to look at Syria or the Seleucid Empire, the king of the north, and Egypt, the king of the south. And this is this is where this timeline at the bottom of your new handout will come in handy. This is you know lines up the the different kings throughout those that time period, that time frame. Um, and like we said, Israel is caught between those two kingdoms. Um, so I, I, I tried at different points to put, I, I just named them like P1 and S1 and A4 and all those things. I tried to even put who was who, and I still think I got some of those wrong as I was reading even with the commentary next to me so um, but we're gonna get this we're gonna make it because <laughs> um, right now it just feels like a jumbled mess right mm -hmm. and that's okay mm -hmm. um, what what we what we want to do is just sort of break it down <coughs> chunk by chunk and and just see the way that God knew what was going to happen. And so if we start back at verse 5, it's then the king of the south. And so that is, um, that is the, the Ptolemy, the Egypt. Um, he shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So we have Ptolemy the first. The, the ruler of Egypt, one of his princes, or some versions say one of his commanders, um, that alludes to Seleucus I, who was uh, uh, um, the, the king of the north, 
or is marked as the king of the north. At that point in time, he was a, um, or he had been working, you know, this is as it initiates. He had been working with, um, with Ptolemy, right? Had been one of the commanders with, uh, with Alexander the Great. Um, at one point, he fled from, from, he was he living in the city of Babylon. He fled from Babylon uh, to Ptolemy in the south and, and was going to serve under him. Then he used his position under Ptolemy to seize the throne back in the north where he greatly increased his power. And so that's, what, that's what's happening. One of his commanders, one of his being the king of the south, but the commanders or princes, which is Seleucus from the north, shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. The kingdom to the north was bigger than the Egyptian kingdom uh, of Ptolemy. And then, and then we move on to verse 6, and after some years, so some time passes, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now at this point in history, using your daughters as wives to make treaties, very common. I mean, if you think back to, to even, even Saul, even before this, Saul had his daughter Michael marry David. Um, Solomon used this with his daughters. This is not new. It, it happened a lot. Um, and, and so, so we now see since, since time has passed, we're to Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, I think was, yeah. And, um, he is, he, the king of the south, gave his daughter Baroness to Antiochus II, who was in, who was the king of the north at this point in time. The challenge was Antiochus II was already married. And so Ptolemy II, he said, you've got to divorce that wife to marry my daughter. Well, Antiochus was like, sure, whatever. His first wife was like, uh-uh, not happening. Um, and, and so when Ptolemy died... Ptolemy died before, Ptolemy II died before Antiochus II died. And so he, um, he then took back his first wife. His first wife then decided that she would murder the daughter of King Ptolemy, Baroness, would also murder Antiochus because she was the second pick, right? and murdered their son, Baroness and Antiochus's son. And so, so here we have, so some time has passed, so we're to a new set of kings of the north and south. They made an agreement, but then their power didn't last, right? He was, he was murdered, his daughter was murdered, and then um, seven through nine, we move to clearly a new set of kings because those ones are all dead, right? So, f and from, from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. Um, Ptolemy third was the brother of Baroness. A, so a branch from her roots. He was out for revenge for her death understandable. He wanted to defend her honor, so he attacked Seleucus II in the north, because we've moved on to him as the next king. And he finally won, but the battle lasted for five years. And then they ignored each other for several years before Seleucus II had a quick attempt at Egypt before he retreated back to Syria. And so if you look at verses 7 through 9, you see that victory from Ptolemy when he carried off to Egypt their gods um, that had been stolen previously. 
So he won victory. Then for some years, they ignored each other, refrained from attacking. And then the latter, that's the king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. He tried it, he lost, he went home. And that's exactly what happened. The, this, um, where's my, sorry, had to scroll down some more. Um, so then we get to this, this next chunk. We see more time passes because now we're to his sons shall wage war. So now we see um, we're to Antiochus the Great, Antiochus III the Great, who was the son of Seleucus II. He takes the throne after his brother, Seleucus III. So you'll see we <coughs> sort of skipped him in there. He was assassinated. Uh, it was only like four years, right? Yeah, he was only king for like four years. He was assassinated, so his brother, Antiochus the Great, takes, takes control of the, the north of the Seleucid, Seleucid Empire. Um, and, and so Antiochus the Great, he was called the Great for a reason. His military prowess, he, he regained some territory, but he lost a battle to Ptolemy IV, in 217 and so he focused instead on moving to the east he sort of gave up on that in-between battle there and he decided well I'm gonna go towards India and he ended up being victorious um, and and made it as far as what is present-day India but in in 201 BC so this is this is 16 years after he lost that battle um, to the king of the south. Antiochus III joined with Philip of Macedon, um, who was the uh, purple. I think he was the purple. I have to remember again um, on your map. He, so the two of them joined together. So there in verse 11 where it says he raised raise a great multitude, um, they joined forces to go and fight against, this time Ptolemy V, Epiphanes. Uh, and at this time, many Jews joined Antiochus III, so this would not have been something that God would have encouraged, of course. It, was, it actually went against the law of God. But they joined Antiochus III in this battle because they wanted to break free from Egypt. They thought if they helped Antiochus, that Antiochus might give them some more freedom, more ability. Um, so Antiochus III, he won that battle. He defeated the city of Sidon. Uh, and so we're to verse 15 where it talks about... Uh, the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. Uh, that's, that's, he did take Sidon. Uh, and then he took Palestine, which was Israel, which, as we've seen throughout the book, is called the glorious land. And that's what it says in verse 16, and he shall stand in, in the glorious land, right? He won that victory, took that area. Um, so then Antiochus tried to give his daughter, his daughter was Cleopatra I. This is not the Cleopatra of uh, Julius Caesar and all of those, that time frame, or, or Antony, I guess, Mark Antony. Um, but Antiochus tried to give his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V, as a peace treaty. Ptolemy was seven years old at the time, by the way. Antiochus wanted to take advantage of this child king, right? He wanted to, to use his daughter to undermine the, this young Egyptian king. She ended up being loyal to him, to her husband, instead of to her father. And so, so it 
his plan failed. It didn't work. He then turned away from attacking Egypt and he headed toward Greece and Rome where he was handily defeated multiple times. Um, and that's where verse 19, uh, or 8, yeah, 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And, and then we get to verse 20. Verse 20 brings a new king to power after the death of Antiochus III, as his son Seleucus IV takes the throne in 187 B.C. And it says, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Seleucus oppressed the Jews, forced them to pay heavy taxes and tributes to both himself and to Rome. Because if you remember, they had lost some battles to Rome and had to pay, pay tributes to Rome for that. He tried to send someone to plunder the temple. He knew there was there were treasures in the Jewish temple. And so he, he tried to send some of his, um, his higher ups in command to, to the Jewish temple um, while he had sent them. Seleucus the, what are we, what number are we on? Fourth. Seleucus the fourth kicks the bucket. He dies. Just out of the blue suddenly dies, right? Neither in anger nor in battle, but he was broken. Um, there was, there were a couple of different explanations, so I, I chose not to pick one. So yeah, I don't know. But it wasn't, it wasn't in an, uh, a, a battle. He wasn't fighting a battle at the time. He had sent somebody else to go and try to plunder the temple and that failed as well. Um, but Warren Wiersbe says human nature hasn't changed over these thousands of years. The ancient world had its share of intrigue, political deception, violence, greed, and war. The lust for power and wealth drove men and women to violate human rights and break divine laws, to go to any length to get what they wanted. They slaughtered thousands of innocent people, plundered the helpless, and even killed their own relatives just to wear a crown or sit on a throne. That's what's been happening through this passage. Lots of battles, lots of fighting, lots of violence, lots of, and, and yet we have to stop and we have to think about Daniel's purpose because it's important when we're studying scripture to think about what the author intended. Daniel's purpose in writing these, this book, Daniel's purpose in the prayers that he prayed, this vision was meant for Daniel to use to encourage and strengthen God's people. But there was a lot of bloodshed and lying and cheating and stealing. And so how should this encourage us today? Ultimately, God wins. Yeah, ultimately God wins. Yeah, none of this was a surprise to God. He tells Daniel hundreds of years ahead of time, here's what's going to happen, right? God knew the future in detail about all these kings from Persia all the way through this point in, in I'm still calling it Greece because it was formerly Greece, but through, through all these years. And he knew everything that has happened since then. The challenges of a very divided government and country, the challenges of a global pandemic on not just the physical health of our society, but the mental health of the people, none of this is a surprise to God. I'm not a king of an empire. The only crown that I wear is as a child of the king. But I also know that God knows all the details that I face. From, from last week, like Ray shared in in the, his sermon on Sunday, we had a rough couple of days last week, and it was just little piddly things. But 
But God knew those details. God knew that, that all of that was going to happen. God knew that we were going to go through those challenges. And God knew that he was going to bring us through to the other side, whether he fixed them or not. God knows for me, just like he knew for the nations. But even more than that, is just this is, God is not finished with this vision. And God is not finished with his plan for this, his people. Um, so there's more to come, right? So um, I have Daniel 11, 21 through 35. I have no idea. So now we get to um, another uh, another another person we've heard about in the past, and so this in his place. This is replacing Seleucus the fourth from verse twenty. He died in one seventy five B.C. and his younger brother Antiochus the fourth took the throne. Antiochus the fourth is a familiar king to us because he was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. What are some things you remember about Antiochus Epiphanes? Extraordinarily violent. Extraordinarily violent. Absolutely. He called himself God. Yeah, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, right? He had it specifically out for the Jewish people. He did. He he was uh, he was particularly evil toward the Jews. And we talked about how he was, he was kind of a foreshadowing for the Antichrist, right? We, we looked at him, if you need a, a refresher, we looked at him in our study on Daniel 8. Um, and, and like Susan said, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, meaning glorious one. But what does Gabriel call him here in verse 21? In his place shall arise a what? 
contemptible person, an, an evil, uh, some versions say vile person. And so Epiphanes means glorious one that he gave himself. And here Gabriel, the messenger of God, is saying, no, you are contemptible, you are vile. Um, I'm going to hit up on, uh, hit on some of the highlights from history that match up with this vision from Daniel 11. And so first, first in verse 21, it says, a person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Even though Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, may have been the son of a king, he was not the rightful heir after the death of his brother. Seleucus IV had a young son that should have become king. Um, however, Antiochus claimed to be protector of the child. The child was actually in Rome at the time. Um, but he claimed to be protector of the child, and so he took over the throne in his place. Um, and then uh, verses 22 and 23, we see that Antiochus Epiphanes was very successful in his military endeavors. Uh, in 169 BC, Ptolemy VI attacked the, the northern kingdom, trying to regain some land they had lost previ previously. But even his large army was defeated by Antiochus, and Ptolemy VI was, uh, was captured. And, and it, you'll see there in verse 22, uh, swept away before him and broken. So he was not killed, but he was, uh, he was captured. And then we move on and we see um, in verses 25 through 28, it talks about the, it describes the first campaign against Egypt where Antiochus won this campaign, but he did not take all of Egypt at that point in time. Um, they sat down to have a truce, to, to sort of make a truce, to settle it, make an agreement. Both sides of the table, both Ptolemy and Antiochus, sat down with the intent to deceive the other. They had no... Uh, no plan to be honest, no plan to keep any sort of truce. And that's what it's talking there in, in um, 20, 27, right? They shall speak lies at the same table. Um, following this, Antiochus turned his attention to Israel, in particular to the temple and those treasures that were still within the temple. Um, like we had talked about when we talked about Daniel chapter 8, Antiochus took away the daily sacrifice. He humiliated the Jews. And a reminder, this, this can be found in the books of First and Second Maccabees. These are part of what we call the Apocrypha. And while we don't consider them to be a part of the canon of Scripture, of our Bible, it was because they didn't meet all of the requirements set forth for, for the for it to be canon, um, this doesn't mean that they are they are not valid historical documents. They are. We can learn from these documents. We can read them. We just can't read them with the same reverence as we do the Bible. That's the that's the key. And so it it really is kind of an interesting read to see what what happened. Um, you're not going to find it in a more modern translation as easily, uh, so you kind of have to work to read it a little bit more. But um, but you can still sort of get an idea of what's what's going on. This is completely covers this time that that Antiochus Epiphanes was was really trying to to destroy the Jewish people. Um, then in verse 29, we get to the at the time appointed. This was 168 BC. Uh, Antiochus invaded Egypt again, but he failed. But he failed because Ptolemy had requested a Roman fleet to come and assist him. I wrote down the name of the particular general in my notes, but I couldn't say it, so I didn't actually copy it over into these notes. But there was a particular person. Um, the uh, 
And, and here we're sort of being introduced to that fourth empire, Rome, that we've talked about before. So we've gone from Persia to Greece, and now we're hearing just a little bit about Rome. Um, Rome was powerful, and Antiochus would have had firsthand knowledge of this. He had had some interactions previously. His father had had some interactions with Rome previously. The, the story goes that he was given a letter from this Roman general telling him to retreat or to face war with Rome and that he needed an answer immediately and that the general actually had one of his men draw a circle around Antiochus and said, you cannot leave the circle without giving me a decision. It's either fight me or go home. Um, so Antiochus retreated in humiliation. Once again, he took out his anger on the Jews. That's the Holy Covenant where it talks about in um, verse 30. And, and Gabriel says, they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate there in verse 31. This is, if you remember the story when, when Antiochus desecrated the temple by building an altar to Zeus inside the Jewish temple and sacrificing a pig on it and then putting images of himself inside the temple, again, thinking that he was in the place of God. Um, this was also when he sent his leaders in peace and then massacred the Jews on the Sabbath. Uh, and again, that's covered more detail in, in First and Second Maccabees. But the good news is that verses 32 through 35 tell us there was a faithful group that opposed Antiochus Epiphanes. This included a priest named Matthias and his five sons. One son, Judas, was nicknamed Maccabeus, which meant the hammerer. That's where the, the name Maccabees for the books comes from. They, uh, he gathered an army and, and resisted Antiochus. And by 165 BC, the Jews finally won and were able to purify the temple and have that back. And then, then Gabriel in verse uh, 35 reminds us reminds Daniel that, that this has implications for the time of the end. So now Daniel has learned more about Antiochus Epiphanes. He's gotten more information about the suffering that the Jewish people will in, endure. Why should this encourage us? God is in control in the midst of evil. Yes. And my favorite verse in this passage, well, really half a verse, favorite phrase, but the people in the end of verse 32, but the people who knew their God shall stand firm and take action. Right? And then 35 says that so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. God will still have people following him. He has a purpose and a goal with all of this suffering. He is in complete control. Warren Wiersbe says, Daniel knew that his people would endure great suffering for their faith, that some would apostatize, that's a desertion of their religion, some would apostatize and join the enemy, and that others would, would trust the Lord, and no matter how difficult the times, God has always had his faithful remnant, and he will keep his people to the very end. And so that's the encouragement for us. God has his faithful people, has his chosen people, and he will keep them to the end through every, every level of suffering, even in these extreme cases. So at this point, we're going to hit the pause button on chapter 11, um, verses 36 through 45. That starts a section that is that, that many theologians believe is the not yet fulfilled portion of this prophecy. Uh, there's a handful that believe it's still related to Antiochus Epiphanes, but there's not a solid definite way to kind of line it up historically like we have with these others, other portions. And so it, it really shifts to describing that little horn 
from Daniel 7, the, the Antichrist. And so next week, we will start in Daniel 11:36, and we will carry on through the end of chapter 12, which is the end of the book. So your homework questions, they, um, they cover chapter 12 as well as some summary questions for the whole book to sort of reflect on things as a whole. Um, but you may want to review Daniel 11:36 through 45 and some of those questions from the chapter 11 homework that discuss the Antichrist and the end times again before next week's discussion, we, we may pick and choose some of those as well. But we, So we won't do all of the questions this week. I sort of got into it and, and it was in reading it and it was just, it was so much and so overwhelming and so confusing to look at who was who and what was what that I decided we would just wait on that next chunk until next week. Um, and I'm the teacher, so I get to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I didn't figure anybody would be that upset. So, um, so I'm going to turn off the camera, and we can get to our discussion questions.